0: I'm mm-hmm.
1: to episode 25 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. My name is Adam McKinnon. And I'm your host. Also with my co-host, as always, Jim Passon Jr. Jim?
0: Oh, uh, man, it's been a long week. yeah good grief not a single game again
1: yeah it's kind of a kind of a drag and at least we
0: got at least we got this so
1: we do have this and joining us for this uh our show's quarter life crisis is uh eric Neusbaum, uh author uh writer of many capacities thank you so much for joining
2: us thank you for having me i'm not sure how many capacities i have but (laughs) but at least one
1: Yeah. You, you, you have, you have one very pressing one right now. You have, you have a book that we're uh, coming out uh, that we're going to discuss in depth in these uncertain times for our, for the sport that we love so much. But, um, but first, as with every guest that we bring on, we start at square one. What is Eric Neusbaum's baseball origin story?
2: Oh man, my baseball origin story is, you know, I grew up in in LA. uh, So I, Pretty much grew up a Dodger fan, and you know, going to games with my family, watching Vince Scully, and listening on the radio. Pretty easy way to fall in love with baseball, I guess. I don't really remember a time I didn't love baseball. It was always there for me. Uh, it felt kind of natural. Um, I used to read the sports page as a kid. Pretty nerdy, and I played through high school, not that well, but. Um, when i became an adult so to speak Mm -hmm. i guess i couldn't really let go of it and in terms of baseball writing i started a blog after college Uh, it was called pitchers and poets and it was sort of ridiculous and weird (laughs) and um (laughs) they all are (laughs) somehow it somehow had a had a little following and it was encouraging enough that i just kept writing about baseball and i never stopped and now here i am Here
1: you are, here you are. Um, you know, one of the things that I found most fascinating was when I was looking at some of your earlier work, and, and you mean you've been uh, to a lot of publications as a contributor, freelancer, but you, one of your earlier jobs was in Mexico City, um, writing about sports and culture, you, and where you published pieces for Deadspin, ESPN, Vice, where you eventually became the West Coast editor, and, and a lot of other places. You know, and so whenever someone, you know, when you work that extensively in a foreign country and then you come back, but you're covering the same content, what did you, what did you find to be sort of the starkest differences between say when you were in Mexico and when you were in the, the United States?
2: So for me, going to Mexico was sort of the thing that I think kind of made my career, I wouldn't say it took off, but it made my career float. Um, I, I was working in Seattle, uh, at a TV station called Q13, a local, local news station. And I was kind of the night shift web editor, like editing, uh, news stories on their website and writing on the side as every and,
1: Cinderella story starts.
2: Right. Uh, I would say this is, yeah, it's a good, origin story. <laughs> I so my, my then girlfriend, now wife and I, uh, we were both kind of ready for a change and we decided to move to Mexico City and uh, take the show there. So we did. I had never been before. And I think a really big advantage for me, and I, I'm i a Spanish speaker, that was a big advantage in Mexico, but was the chance to see a culture and a country through a fresh set of eyes and experience things and see things that I would have taken for granted in the States. and find a story in places I might not have found a story uh, another advantage for me was it's very easy to go from Mexico to Cuba and at the time I was tr- traveling to Cuba a fair amount and I didn't really need to go through any official channels to do that oh, uh, I don't wow. think I can get in trouble now for saying that yeah so <laughs> we won't being able to you. go to Cuba and write about baseball in Cuba is first of all an incredible experience and second of all something of a competitive advantage
1: yeah yeah yeah, you definitely have uh, the market cornered in that way, right?
0: Um,
2: yeah, I don't know about cornered, but I was yeah. I was one of the few.
0: <laughs> there you go. That's uh, amazing. So, did you, you have something lined up before you took off down there then, or were no. you going just just say hey, let's just move? I'm looking for a different experience in life.
2: That was it. We just moved. Uh, I taught English. That was what I. So I got down there and I taught English for a while, and was, sort of was writing stories, you know pitching stories, and um, I, the story that really like kind of pushed my career into the place where I didn't have to teach English as much was uh, my first print magazine story, which was a story about Lucha Libre for ESPN the magazine, and uh, I had a really gracious editor named Megan Greenwell who accepted a pitch about gay and trans Lucha Libre wrestlers, which is not something I would have ever guessed would get taken by a glossy magazine,
1: that is, but it uh, did. And that is some brave territory, sir.
2: One. I mean, it was, it was cool. It was yeah. really, it was really, um, it was really a special experience. I'm very grateful for it.
1: And did you like, it's so interesting when you, you know, cause your career does kind of span, there's a lot of prongs to the fork, so to speak. Um, you know, and going from country to, you know, country to country, sport to sport, story to story, do you find that you, uh, modify, is there any sort of tone or tenor or modification that you make when you're writing about a particular sport? Like, does a baseball story have a certain formula for you? Does a football story, does a wrestling story, does a human interest story have any sort of formula when you approach them? Or is it very, is it case by case?
2: I think it's case by case. I think the story itself has to be the, the first thing. Um, when I went to work at Vice as an editor, I, I learned a lot about, about that. And I think a lot of the stuff that had been in my head sort of unspoken or not really thought through, I had to sort of crystallize it and learn how to talk about stories and writing in a way that actually made sense to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things I discovered quickly was that stories have to have, and this is going to sound really simple and dumb, but like for a story to work, there has to be a narrative, there has to be movement, there has to be stuff happening uh, and I think that the kind of rules of storytelling transcend not just each individual sport but transcend sports and kind of reach into everything else
0: right
1: okay did you did you find that writing stories that you know for for were you did you find yourself being more of a beat reporter in, when it was all said and done or were you, were you taking more of a features writer type of
2: approach? I mean, I would say that I was never really a beat reporter i mm-hmm. i I applied for some beat reporter jobs I never gotten any <laughs> uh, the so I mean when you're a freelancer you're sort of just a an everything writer if you if you can be uh, I guess feature writer was always the you know the stories that I wanted to write were the big long you know meaty juicy feature stories and I've gotten to write some and I really enjoy that mm-hmm. um, and then you know I like to write the kind of shorter shorter stuff too but yeah, I guess feature writer is the the one you're always shooting for. Right, right.
0: Now now you've done editing in the States. Did you do editing while you were down in Mexico City also? Were you able to do Latin American Spanish on editing or did you rely on an no, editor for I, you? I
2: I I only really wrote in English. I'm not I'm confident confident enough to speak Spanish to people and, you know, report in Spanish and interview people in Spanish and translate, but writing in Spanish and publishing in Spanish, I'm not there. Like um Maybe if I really, really had to, but there's just so much to writing a story, especially like a meaningful news story. You're writing about somebody's life where you want to get the details right and get the get the language precisely right uh, and get the subtleties in there. And I never felt confident uh, as a writer in Spanish to do that. So where, certainly not as an editor either. Where
0: did you pick up the Spanish? Was that something that you picked up uh, along the way? Because it almost seems that if you were able to speak it so well, it probably wasn't an educated Spanish, or is this something you know, that just was, something your family I, spoke?
2: So, yeah, my mom, uh, my mom's mom was from Cuba, and my mom lived in Cuba when she was younger. Uh, so my mom and her sister spoke Spanish, my grandma spoke Spanish, and my elementary school was Spanish immersion in L.A., so I learned uh, Spanish in school from a young age. And it kind of stuck in a way where... I retained a lot of the verbal stuff, but some of the grammatical uh, and syntax kind of disappeared over the years.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, because I see it as uh, exactly the opposite for my learning, right? I don't. I never was immersed into the actual speaking portion. So for me, learning Spanish has been a nightmare because everything's just been strictly gram- grammar, uh, you know, just tenses and things like that. So and to be still, able to just do the other... Like yeah, it's it's not easy. Anybody that thinks speaking Spanish is going to be something you can just pick up? Either you, no, yeah, it's not. My, really hard at it.
1: my wife speaks Spanish like, and I I can't wrap my head around it sometimes. Like I think I've got a handle on it, and then I don't. But it, it seems like such a valuable skill, especially in the the ever evolving landscape in baseball, in particular. Um, you know, especially from a speaking standpoint you know, so many players come up from Latin America, from Cuba, you know, I, I wonder, you know, you said you you had spent some time in, in Cuba. I mean, did you get to see any of these, like, you know, what was it like over there culturally from a baseball perspective?
2: Oh, it's really cool. I mean, it's, it's very different, right? I mean, it's a whole different world of baseball. Um, you know, going to games there as a fan even is just really interesting. You know, there's no booze in the stadium, but everybody's still super excited and hyped up uh the, the kind of the crowd vibes and ambiance are just like a little bit heightened um there's sort of a just i don't know i mean it's hard not to fall into like really bad cliches talking about yeah. it but it's really special it's a it's a different place and it's really changing i think I mean, i haven't been for a few years and a lot of the talent has left and a lot of the kind of resources have been drained out and it's, it's been hard for them to maintain the quality of the league with all their best players defecting to the States.
1: Right. Do do you wonder, I I was every comparison I hear this is uh, from people that I've talked to for that. I've experienced baseball in Asia that have experienced baseball in Latin America and the United States. Is it, is it too broad of a brush to say that the American brand of baseball is just is almost like, and and the crowd even, it almost takes a sort of um, and I hate to use this word, but like almost a mundaneness next to or a professionalism, you know, next to the crowds that you see and the players that you see in Latin America and and in Asia to some extent too, where there's this, there's a much more emotionally driven game is, is from what I observe. Is that, is that too broad of a brush to paint with? Or do you think that's accurate that it's just more of an event? It's more of an emotionally driven event.
2: I think that's probably at least somewhat true with Latin America. I can't really speak to Asian baseball. I haven't been to a game in Taiwan or Japan or South Korea. Um, I would love to go. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's you know each country has its own baseball culture its own baseball traditions you know Japanese baseball super fundamentally oriented they have
0: yeah
2: a different way of playing that you could say it is more professional or more you know kind of strict and serious um, in a way uh, with the games I've been to like say del you Caribe know, games in Mexico or games in Cuba or games in Colombia or wherever it is it's it's definitely like you know it's less produced I would say there's less special effects, there's kind of sure. less less figurative and literal distance between the, the players and the fans. And I think that goes a long way, just that sort of intimacy.
1: Sure. And so would you say that it's um, it's more raw? It's just more of a raw game? And can you speak a little bit to the, um, the, the quality? When you say it's difficult to maintain the quality of the game, it's just strictly about the talent going to the States, right?
2: Yeah, in Cuba, I mean, it's strictly about talent. I mean, you're seeing, you know, all these great Cuban players in the States. You know, the first time I went to Cuba, a kid was telling me about this amazing player named Jose Abreu, (laughs) who was still in Cuba at the time, you know, and he, you know, a year later, he's on the White Sox, right? So that was, God, 2015 or, no, earlier, 2013, maybe? Yeah, Um, yeah. So... That was, I mean, and he was an early defector. You've had a lot of players leave, a lot of, a lot of young Cuban players leave who don't necessarily have the stuff to make the majors or even sign a contract. But you know, maybe if they would have stayed in Cuba and developed their talent a little bit longer, they could have been contributors uh, in the City Nacional. There, they could have they could have grown into better players. Um, You know, when I saw Yuli Gurriel in Cuba, it was like watching Derek Jeter. He was just a spectacular player in his prime and now you know he's older and he's a pretty good first baseman on the astros but right um losing a guy like that or losing a guy like his little brother it yeah it hurts the league a lot it just lowers the level of talent and it lowers the excitement uh for fans to go watch
0: now, we hear stories uh, about, say, management, right, of, of the players, um, not on the baseball field, but as just managers go of their career, um, that there's a there's a large reward for the managers, right, that say, okay, I, I can get you into the United States and get you on a team. I'm just going to take 30% of your signing bonus, something to that effect. We hear that throughout Latin America. Do you? Do you do you see that as a problem that still exists down there? Because there's there's drug use for the uh, PEDs that are kind of being pushed, and then all of a sudden they get into a clean game and well, cleaner game in baseball, supposedly in America. Um, is that still stuff that happens down there? Is that a, a rampant problem?
2: I think like PEDs are like not even uh, scratching the surface of the problems with the way. I mean, it's really human trafficking. You have Yasiel Puy got taken out of Cuba by a literal drug cartel Um, and I don't think his story is that out of the line of the norm you have a lot of people who are making money, you know, sneaking players from Haiti and the Dominican Republic and guys and teams doing shady stuff and I mean it's I think um, it's dangerous for players I think it's there's a lot of unethical stuff that we don't see or hear about. But, I mean, there was a you know, Department of Justice investigation of the Dodgers not that long ago that kind of peaked and poked out in the news and disappeared again. I don't know what happened with it. Right. But I think there's definitely shady stuff going on. And I think a lot of players – I mean, you had the Leonis Martin situation that um, are – you know, put at risk as people and their families are put at risk, and they're taken advantage of. And I'm not really sure what the answer to it is, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I've see more major league teams, at least a little bit, uh, getting there, setting up schools, and uh, getting players the education to go along with it. But we're not seeing that in Cuba, I don't think. I think it's more like the Dominican Republic.
2: Um, yeah, and even that, I mean, I've even the Dominican that. Republic, you you can argue that you're seeing. You know, are they really getting much of an education? You know, these guys. They get taken away as kids Taken away isn't maybe the right word But they sign them up as kids And they put them in camps And they sleep them in dorms And they teach them baseball But then you Most of these kids Aren't going to make the minors Much less the majors And what happens to them after that? You know Are they really benefiting? Are those communities benefiting from Talent getting sucked away? I I don't know It's sort of a colonial
1: It's very imperialistic Resource (laughs) extraction. Yeah 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 it's,
2: It's it
0: seems like you give him, like, the dream to become the next Pedro Martinez or something like that, and then it's just a dirty way to try to get to that point where you get to be that great, right? Because, I mean, Vladimir Guerrero can walk through this the streets down there, and he's, he's just flat out a hero. I mean, he'll throw a parade every time he comes home, but... You know so they they see their heroes and but it just seems like yeah every time I see like a camp down there uh, for younger players they're like 10 hours a day seven days a week yeah they get fed they get you know some English lessons or something to that effect but it seems like it's definitely more baseball oriented than it is education oriented and a lot of those players are 16 15
2: 17s so. right I love baseball but I think it would be silly to think that major league teams have the best interests of, you know, Dominican or Mexican or Panamanian kids and communities at heart. I mean, Unfortu- you know
1: unfortunately, based on the actions of the league and international uh, signing, you know, the international free agency rules and uh, being a Braves fan, all you, John Coppola and all everything that yeah. came with that, um, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. Uh, and I, I agree with you on all that. Um, I wanted I want to shift gears just a little bit before we get to the break and and ask you a very simple question. Um, you know, obviously these are these are unprecedented times here uh, yes. that we're in. So I wanted to ask you a question in terms of how you know of all the writing you've done, okay, and everything that you've worked with, and how you just see the way media. And the baseball media is right now. And, and I'm not insinuating good, bad, or otherwise. Do you think this will have any impact over how we co- we cover sports and how we cover baseball in particular? Do you think it will have any impact at all?
2: I fear that it's going to mean there's going to be less people to cover sports and cover baseball. Um, mm-hmm. I, I fear that we're going to have more media layoffs because of this. Uh, we've had... Local media and sports media decimated over the last few years, without uh, sweeping global pandemic and imminent recession. Uh, so I think, when I really think about it, I'm worried that you know publications, newspapers aren't going to be able to afford to keep up their sports staffs uh, without sports, and whether those jobs will ever come back if they do go. Right. That's the that's the first instinct.
1: Right. I agree. If, if there's no if there's nothing there. Do you, do you see this sort of, like, the, the blog as, or anything like that as the sort of next wave of who's covering sports?
2: I think the blog is probably the last wave of who's covering sports, unfortunately. Right. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I think The Athletic is a better example of what might work. I think people paying for stuff, uh, paying right. for content. Um, right. I think, you know, blogs are how many blogs are there, you know, Yeah, right. <laughs> um, newsletters seem to be popular. Some people like mm-hmm. newsletters. I have a newsletter. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that that might be an answer. I, I don't know. I'm not really like a media theorist. I, I hope that people cover sports and people read about sports. Uh, I know I will. Yeah, definitely. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's definitely asking people right now, right. To find your creative side, right. Instead of just being able to go through, Oh, okay. It's, winter meeting time it's you know the offseason has its schedule it's you know pitchers and catchers report, spring training now all of a sudden you just have a point that's never happened right i mean there's not even a strike to cover at least when there were strikes you could at least talk about the strike this is non-baseball related that's causing baseball and all the other sports to be to knock out right so you start to see people like i think jeff pass just started a uh podcast right I mean people are stretching for any way to be creative does, at this does point. Jeff
1: passan need a podcast does he does he really need it i uh, he,
0: he might disappear he's not really known by too many so I just I worry know.
1: I worry about Jeff and he falling into obscurity
0: and if um, Jeff's listening he's still invited on the show he's I'm always
1: invited on the this, show this is gonna this be a thing. Like,
2: it's like seven straight episodes we've asked yeah. him. But, maybe, he'll uh, on, maybe he'll be on – maybe you'll be on his
1: podcast. Yeah. Oh, I'm don't, don't, don't patronize me, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do – that does bring up an interesting question, though, it, it, you know, sort of related to the other one. Like in this vacuum of, of – in this void of no sports, do you think – like I wonder if people are looking around saying, like, hey, this is an opportunity – to do these sort of like more in-depth long form, you know, stories. Like, do you, do you think that there's, do you view this as an opportunity for stuff like that? Or do you think that, like you said, like the, the landscape is so volatile that there may not, there may not be that opportunity.
2: I mean, maybe a little bit of both, you know, I think some writers who are probably used to covering games are going to have time to do other stories, but like what, how are you going to report a story right now? Uh, You can't go spend one-on-one time with a player. You can't uh, have intimate conversations in person right now. Um, You know, the action of the season is what drives what stories we'd write about. You know, if all of a sudden, I don't know, Gio Ursula has hit 37 home runs at the all-star break. That'd be a great story to read. I'd like to read about his off season training regimen or whatever, but we don't know what he's doing right now. Right. There's, so it, it's really hard because the season itself generates a lot of what the stories would be. And with no season, I don't know. There's yeah. not much to, to write about.
1: That's a good point. And, uh, yeah, I, I definitely I agree. Uh, What is baseball?
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think we all do. I've gotten to the point that yeah, I need new stats to play with, and still just it's killing me. I can't take it.
1: Well, well, wait. uh, We're gonna we're gonna take a quick break right here, and um, what we're gonna do is when we come back, we're gonna talk about uh, your new book, Eric, uh, which I'm I'm pretty excited to talk about because I I'd love to get your insight on it. So uh, we'll be right back. And we're back, and again, uh, hanging out with us tonight is Eric Newsbomb. Uh, we are here to uh, talk about his uh, his newest book, uh, "Stealing Home." And uh, Eric, can you uh, you know summarize the give us the uh, give us the summary here? Let us know what this book
2: is about. First of all, I like that you said newest book, as if there's there's multiple <laughs> uh, only book. Uh, <laughs> the uh, so stealing home is a book about, on a very very simple level, how LA ended up with Dodger Stadium. Uh, the story is that many years before Dodger Stadium existed, there was there were three kind of small communities in the hills north of downtown LA. Um, Now this area is called Chavez Ravine. And uh, these communities were filled with mostly Mexican immigrants and their children. So kind of these little neighborhoods that were kind of isolated from the rest of the city. Um, And in the late 40s, the city's housing department decided that these three neighborhoods, which had been kind of neglected by the city government over the years, Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop are the names of the neighborhoods, and they had been not treated the best by by L.A. government, uh, that they should be the site of a brand new utopian, fancy, state-of-the-art public housing project. Hmm. Uh, So the city evicted uh, more than a thousand families from their homes and was going to start building a housing project there. But in 1952, one of the main housing officials behind this project was testifying at an eminent domain hearing related to it and was asked by an attorney pretty much if he was a communist or not. Uh, It turns out that he was. And (laughs) this set off a... Not set off, this was sort of like the culmination of a sort of long-running real estate battle in LA between private developers and public housing advocates and you have like the standard corporate you know tycoons pulling the strings behind it uh pretty much that killed the housing project and a new mayor was swept into office uh, an anti-housing mayor and all these families had been evicted for no reason uh a few of the families and especially one I write about called the Adechiga family had stayed in their homes and resisted, and they were kind of in the middle of this legal fight to keep their homes. So this fight goes on throughout the 1950s, um, even after the city sells this vacant land to the Dodgers. And the sort of culminating moment in the book is that before Dodger Stadium could be built, uh, the city, which had sold the land to the Dodgers, had to forcibly evict this family from their home. Uh, So they did that and on live television and bulldozed the house and eventually Dodger stadium came to be. Wow. So more often than not,
1: when we talk about the, the, you know, when I first read the title of the book and I read the excerpt, you know, more often than not, when the story that we hear about when the Dodgers came to LA if you, you know, have ever watched Ken Burns baseball, if you've ever watched any documentary, the story is almost always told from the perspective of like loss, from the uh, Brooklyn fans, from the the Dodgers just up in the middle of the night, just just leaving. Uh, what you're offering here is a, is a total is a perspective that I think is w- really, really underreported. Um, can you kind of, in as layman terms as possible, kind of explain the perspective you're coming from versus the perspective that is that is widely accepted?
2: Sure. I mean, the Dodgers did leave Brooklyn. That did happen. But I think that the story's often been told from the Brooklyn perspective, from the, the tragedy of the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn. Um, and I don't think that the complicated nature of the Dodgers' journey to L.A., uh, is talked about enough? I don't think that the kind of importance of Walter O'Malley moving baseball west and really making it national is talked about enough. Uh, I think agreed that that is one of the most significant events. Probably, I mean, if you're talking about big things in baseball, Jackie Robinson and the Dodgers and Giants moving to the West Coast. Uh, right after that, you know, chronologically, or the mid-century kind of linchpins of how baseball grew. Um, So the book is really specifically told from an L.A. West Coast perspective. I think that the East Coast version has been told a lot. Um, It's been told really well. There's a lot of great books on the Dodgers leaving. Uh, It was a very complicated, drawn-out process. I think that the idea that they left in the middle of the night isn't quite right. Uh, There were very Mm -hmm. public and painful negotiations between Walter O'Malley and uh really robert moses in new york um and they left uh but i was more interested in in what was happening in la mm-hmm.
0: and then they, you said that the are a family that that was the home that was uh actually destroyed on live television
2: it was it was bulldozed
0: on live television, in the and basically, this is what early to mid fifties at this point. This is, it's yeah, going to be a couple years before they move. Okay,
2: late so this is right before the move. May this is after the move. This is they were already in LA playing in the Coliseum. Oh, wow. good grief!
0: Jeez. And to be able to take that type of airtime in the fifties, just to be able to put that out, that's that's a statement.
2: That's, well, it was a big story in LA. I mean, this the story of um, Dodger Stadium and of uh, this land had been kind of ongoing for a decade. So you're talking about. You know, May 8th, 1959 is when the, the evictions happened. Those, I mean, there were other people—most people didn't get their houses knocked down. And and I think it's not fair to say the Dodgers came and bulldozed a house. It was really right. a process that was set in motion long before the Dodgers came. Um, and, and there's a very, like, simple version of that, too, where it's like the Dodgers came and they evicted a whole community. Uh, that's not really what happened. Uh, but the Dodgers were kind of the final straw in— in the destruction of these communities. And ultimately you have this really kind of grave injustice when you look at it from a, from a distance, it's that a lot of families who are homeowners um, and they were homeowners in this community partly because they were restricted by racist rules from owning homes in other communities, had their homes taken away by the government ostensibly for a public purpose. And then the government sold their land to a out-of-town businessman to build a baseball stadium. I mean, if that happened to you, you would be furious. Yeah. And you would be furious at the government, and you'd be furious at the businessman, uh, I think justifiably. Um, so what when those houses um, were evicted, were, excuse me, were destroyed, and when that family was evicted, um, they had been sort of the face of the resistance to development there and they had been in the news for years already so people knew who they were in la and you know the media tv news was pretty new they wanted good pictures and they got you know a spectacle
1: so it was uh you know it's interesting because it's a, it, what you're digging into are things that to be honest with you yeah i mean it's not this narrative is not offered on the main i I, i'll say it without condescension the mainstream level you know a, a lot of this out outside maybe it is in la on the west coast but like you know outside i mean yeah the only time you ever hear anyone talk about you know the dodgers leaving like you said it's from the brooklyn perspective And, and specifically for your book, you you pick specific timelines, you pick specific almost characters. I don't, I don't want to use that term lightly, but the characters in the book is there, and is there an overarching sort of like all of this culminates into, are they intersecting plot lines or is there some kind of link or are these all plots like basically different lenses of the same story?
2: I mean, I think the story is a really sweeping story. And I think the book tries to be at once sort of intimate with the the main figures, I'll say, because they're real people, uh, and also give you the perspective to put it all together. And it's really tricky, and it was a hard process to figure out how to do that uh, and be respectful of the the perspectives and the lives of these people. You know, So the book really follows uh, this family, the Odechigas, and especially... Abrana, who is the kind of matriarch of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it follows Frank Wilkinson, who's the housing official, whose, you know, life, life and career is ruined in the Red Scare. And then it really follows kind of the story of baseball and why L.A. needed baseball or wanted baseball so badly. And at the end, Walter O'Malley and his vision and why he thought L.A. was the right choice and why here, you know, Chavez Ravine, as it became known, was the right choice and why um, he really how he built this incredible ballpark.
0: And so, is there a mixed uh, review then? I guess from from L.A. the, the from uh, is it Los Angeles that uh, that Angelinos. 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 I, think, uh, I should know this. Um, <laughs> it, I, I mean, you get seventy eight thousand people to show up for the first game. I mean, so it seems like there was. A want from the LA side because baseball on the West Coast never existed before. And I mean, it's not like they didn't bring a bad team over. I mean, I mean it was they brought third- a great team. 13 straight winning seasons in brooklyn before they left brooklyn which is i mean the dodgers record they've never won had 13 straight winning seasons in a row until then and then they left right and then they come over have a losing season their first year but draw seventy eight thousand in the crowd the first night of of opening day right for them right Um, so
2: there was a lot of excitement i mean jackie robinson was from la you know uh there was duke snyder was from la you know there was um a lot of excitement you know jackie robinson was gone by that point but snyder was still around the dodgers were great they won the world series in 59 you know their second year in la they won the world series but there was also there was also a lot of kind of resistance to the idea that the city should be kind of playing ball so to speak with walter o'malley uh you know they came in 1958 soon after the Dodgers landed in L.A., O'Malley was served with a subpoena. Uh, there was a referendum on the Dodger Stadium deal in May of 1958, you know, a couple months into their first season. And it was really close. It was, so the Dodgers could have lost this, and they could have never built Dodger Stadium. It was 52-48. Uh, I mean, it was not a world, you know, unanimous, everybody wants the Dodgers to stay. The Dodgers, I read about this in the book, they had a telethon. Like, one of the first kind of telethons on TV in LA, and they had all these celebrities coming out and kind of recording their messages and talking about why you should you should vote yes on B for baseball. Uh, it was <laughs> by no means uh, a guaranteed success, and Walter O'Malley took a lot of big risks to to make baseball work in LA.
0: So, was how- there uh, help from the was there help from the San Francisco market for this too? I mean. Because, from my understanding, getting a team in LA was also depending on having two teams on the West Coast. There was, right, from the major league perspective. So, did you get some support out of Frisco that you've ever found in your
2: research? There, there wasn't a lot of support from San Francisco necessarily. I mean, they had their own battles to fight. You know, Candlestick Park ended up being constructed with public funds and owned by the city, Uh, and it, you know. For that reason, it was a multi purpose stadium and it kind of stunk. It didn't have the character and it didn't have the aura that Dodger Stadium has. Um, And that was kind of Horace Stonem's thing and they were doing it. Um, But what's interesting is that there was opposition from San Diego. Uh, There was a, you know, league on the west coast the pacific coast league that was really good uh at times probably i mean they talked about becoming a third major league at certain points uh and the san diego padres were a pcl team at the time and the ownership of the padres was among the people who were really opposed and really uh organizing against uh the dodgers being in la because they didn't want the competition they didn't want the major leagues on the west coast it's yeah airplane travel
0: killed the PCL.
1: Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's fascinating because, again, this is this is just a story that you just don't you just don't hear very often. You know, a lot of times when you look back, it's, you know, the that uh, baseball was welcomed, you know, on the on the West Coast, you know, and it's and it's not as well. I feel like what you're doing, it's just not as well publicized, but it's a necessary viewpoint.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's necessary. I mean, I think baseball was welcomed on the West Coast. People loved baseball in L.A. It wasn't about whether or not people wanted baseball. It was whether or not they thought this was a fair deal for the city and for the people of L.A. Um, a lot of people who opposed the deal were sort of like what you'd call, you know, economic conservatives. People who'd said, who would say, I don't want, you know, my tax dollars going to a private enterprise. I don't want the city to be. Spending money on highway exits for a baseball stadium, or the county, uh, it was sort of this strange alliance between this um, sort of small uh, Mexican American community and like conservative working class white families in LA, and their and their council members that that opposed baseball, whereas like kind of more of like the Uh, communities of color in LA actually tended to support the Dodgers coming. It was, it was a weird, um, complicated thing full of unholy alliances. Uh, It was, it was not a a simple matter.
1: Do you see the, do you see the parallels to today with a lot of the controversy around, you know, um, taxpayer funded stadiums? I know Atlanta here in Atlanta, we had issues with that. Um, you talk about like in Oakland right now, they're going through something similar with, with their new stadiums. Um, how do you, do, do you see, do you see the parallels here or, or, um, I guess, let me rephrase the question. Like there, do you see the similarities or do you think this is a, this is a more unique situation?
2: Uh, both. I mean, this, the book doesn't really get into anything temporary. Uh, I think you can read it and draw your own conclusions that sure, things haven't yeah. really changed that much. Uh, I think when you look at who stands to benefit from stadium development and who stands to get hurt, uh, you—it's—I mean, I don't have to spell it out. Right. Um, <laughs> I think you know, working class communities never benefit from that kind of development. Unfortunately, they get their rents raised, they get evicted, they get— despite what marketing it, would te- would tell you. Sure. The—I mean, okay, stadiums provide part-time jobs for people after the construction is over, that are seasonal. And um, we're seeing now what happens and how fragile those jobs are, unfortunately. I think that there's a sort of myth that sports stadiums bring this kind of magic economic benefit to cities, and they don't necessarily. Um, That said, you know, I think sports are great and an important part of civic identity, and they can be. Um, I, you know, don't think uh Dodger Stadium would be as Let me rephrase that. I don't think that people would be talking about the families that got evicted to build a public housing project, unfortunately. Right. Uh people would be talking about the families that got evicted to build Dodger Stadium, you know? Uh, That's fair. Sports has a has a mystical kind of magical hold on us and can't discount that either. Uh it's complicated
1: yeah no that, that's a that's a good way of putting it um you know i i just i i have one more question i wanted to ask and it's one that's uh, jim did you have do you have did you have anything before i get into the last one i'm sorry
0: no no I, i'm i'm just taking it all in getting okay. there to do all the talking because i'm interested as <laughs> in all heck because you don't you don't hear this side of the story and uh, i mean i'm not trying to get him to read the whole book to me i want them to be able to to get me tied in and that's where i'm at now right? no,
1: that's a, good. I just, uh, I,
0: i'm interested I, i'm going to probably spend like the next hour that i should be sleeping after this is uh, done recording and i'm just going <laughs> to probably be staring at like the 58 dodgers baseball reference page for a while just trying to be baffled by you know the riches that are dropped upon a city right this is this is crazy to hear that uh, they got such a great team to begin with and but just the way that they got it, it's just yeah, it's awkward. So look man. at the '59
2: yeah. team that won the World Series. They were not that good. That's the amazing thing about about the Dodgers coming to LA. The team that wins their first World Series in LA at the Coliseum, which is terrible for baseball, uh, it was a football stadium really. Right. Uh, it was like a pretty bad team. Uh, it was not. It was not the. It was not the '55 Dodgers. That's for sure.
1: Right. No. The um, right. the question I have is, and, and I have asked this as a, a personally I have a I have a great affection for Vin Scully, um, and it doesn't take you long in the book to to reference Vin right away. And in fact, from the book, the excerpt that I got to read online, it says, you know, and I quote, you know, when Vin Scully says something, it's like God is speaking. His voice is ambient in the Southern California air. It is the voice inside your head. You mentioned earlier that Vin Scully. You listened to Vin Scully when you know, um, you know, when you were uh, getting into Dodger baseball. Um, tell me about his impact on you.
2: I don't know um, if I can imagine a baseball childhood without Vin Scully, and I'm going to have to, <laughs> you know, imagine it for my kids. Um, obviously, he retired. Right. He's. Um, he was the the voice inside my head. When I wrote that, I was really talking about myself. You know, when I... If I watch baseball on mute, like, the cadence of Vince Scully's voice is the cadence that I hear the game in. It almost works on a heartbeat level. Like, if you read poetry, you have, like, the meter in the poetry. Like, the, the iambic pentameter or whatever it is right. is Vince Scully's voice to me. Uh, the way he delivered his sentences. The da 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 Like, right. <laughs> um... And I just... I mean, I love listening to him, um, and I'm mean, I'm not alone in that. I got to write an article about for Vice about how he came up with his stories and his research practices, and it was really about his support staff. He has he had this amazing team of guys he'd been working with for decades who mm-hmm. were who would help him, you know, and kind of help him get through each game. And they had this sort of like chemistry, the way like a good double play combination would have it, right. and. Um, it was really cool and you know i wasn't there to talk to him i was at dodger stadium to talk to them and he walked into the press box before the game just to sing the praises of these guys that he was working with and it was probably the coolest experience i've ever had as a as a sports writer
1: so so you got to meet him
2: yeah wow that's That's cool (laughs) that's so cool that was my plan all along
1: yeah that's right that's that that, that, that (laughs) it was just how they drew it up (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. See so, I mean, growing up as a kid, we always I mean we
0: didn't get baseball games on the radio in the middle of Montana, right? All we got were Cubs on WGN and the Braves on TBS. So, you know, I years before I got I was way old by the time that I got to hear Ben Scully for the first time. And but yeah, that voice, I mean, he's been out now for two years, almost three now. This will be his third season not not doing the the Dodgers broadcast. And you can you can just hear it. I can't imitate it. I can't imitate anybody's voice, but it's a it's it it's just stuck with you. He's such a great delivery man. The way that he paints a picture for you, I'd almost rather listen to the radio than watch the game in the Dodgers play. So
2: it's it's amazing.
1: Well, depending, I guess uh, from what I hear, depending on L.A., you, radio may be your only option to watch to watch the yeah, game. Yeah,
2: for a lot of people in L.A., there is no there is no t- Dodgers on TV. Yeah, really sad they
1: really, they really gotta fix that they really gonna fix that
0: but that's a- i got to work at i got to work at dodger stadium once this is one of my my cool stories that i got to do as a cable guy one time i was working in anaheim on a separate project and another job came up they just needed some audio equipment changed out at dodger stadium it was like a week before opening day and so yeah i got to go underneath the stands out in left field and replace some audio equipment in this panel and uh and then yeah the the guy's like oh i can't let you on the field but i can walk you past the press boxes so i got to go past ben scully's press box with his name up on the door and everything else but yeah this is close and i never got to see a game in dodger stadium or anything like that it was my only trip to dodger stadium oh nice. wow empty stadium it was pretty crazy so i'm gonna to have to get back the, the grass just looks always so much greener on the picture there than it does almost in any other stadium so
1: well eric uh, i can't thank you enough for for joining us for for the show this week um and uh, man I, I i'm really excited for the book to come out i think it's a story that that really doesn't get told enough and needs to be told
2: Thank you. Uh, I'm excited for it to come out, too. It's been really fun talking to you guys. I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Absolutely. And uh, yeah. you... And that release is, uh, I think it's Tuesday next week, correct? Right. Yes, yeah, March twenty fourth.
2: It's Tuesday.
1: soon. It is soon.
0: Soon. Very soon. So,
1: Oof, man. Soon. All right, and uh,
0: four days from the time everybody else uh, gets to hear this, but by the time Jeff Passing gets to hear this uh, podcast, it'll probably be out for at least two weeks. At point, least, so. at least
1: that long. Come on,
0: come on the show, Jeff.
1: Quit ducking us, Jeff. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so yeah. much for joining us. Uh, the book is uh, Stealing Home. Um, what is the full title? What is the full title?
2: Stealing Home, colon, Los Angeles, the Dodgers, and the Lives Caught in Between.
1: Brilliant. I love it. Well, thank yeah. you so much for hanging out with us, and uh, we'd love to have you back sometime just on, on a regular capacity. It'd be great.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to pick up the book, and then since we live in the same town, I found out today, uh, I'm just going to drive over to your house, knock on the door, and uh, get an autograph.
2: Just so. stay six feet away. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> oh, yeah. social distancing, guys. Stay home,
1: wash and wash.